Our scripture reading this morning is found in the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 11, beginning at verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. So I ask, have my people stumbled so as to fall? By no means. But through their stumbling salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their stumbling means riches for the world and if their defeat means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I glorify my ministry in order to make my own people jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, then the branches also are holy. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree, do not vaunt yourselves over the branches. If you do vaunt yourselves, remember that it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps he will not spare you. Note the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And even those in Israel, if they do not persist in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you've been cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's join before God in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come before you. And as you have spoken to your people from generation to generation, we come with an expectation that through the reading and the proclamation of your word, you will speak to us. So give to us, each one of us, here in the sanctuary or watching online, a word from you that we might know that we have met with you this day and that you long to touch and heal our lives that we might grow in faith and grace for Christ's sake. Amen. 
Last Sunday in our sermon series, in which we're looking together at the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans, from which we've just read, we began looking together at a series of chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, which focus on the relationship between God's ancient people Israel and their Messiah, our Lord Jesus. What I said last week was this, that one of the great pressing questions in the early days of the Christian church, uh, even within 20 years of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, was the fact that it was becoming clear to many people, including the Apostle Paul, that the Jewish people, the people of our Lord Jesus, by and large, were not going to embrace Him as their Messiah. So within the church, uh, and within the church in Rome, to which the Apostle Paul was writing his letter, questions were rising up about Israel, about the Jewish people, about what God was up to in his great plans for the universe. Had God, for example, rejected his people because they had rejected his Son? What about God's promises in Holy Scripture? These were made originally to Abraham, a great covenant was made with Abraham, the ancestor, uh, according to the flesh of God's uh, ancient people Israel, promised that Abraham's descendants would be great, uh, promised that they would be a source of blessing to the world, promised that God would always be with them. So had God broken his promise, forgotten his promise? Could God's promise be trusted? Could any of God's promises be trusted? If God had forgotten or broken this promise, could the book of Scripture, which contains so many promises, could any of this be trusted? And Paul himself put this question into one salient question. Had the Word of God failed? Had God somehow let people down? To which Paul explicitly replies in Romans chapter 9 and at verse 6 with the categorical, no, 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 no. It is not as though God's Word has failed. It is not as if God has forgotten or broken His promises to Abraham and his ancient people. Not at all. And that sets the scene. So he then goes on to quote a number of passages and stories and promises about God in the Bible to show that throughout the history of God's ancient people, God was always at work in the most usual as well as unusual ways, in the most unexpected ways with the most unexpected people. God was a God of amazing grace, and that one could not say that God had stopped his work amongst his people. This, Paul believed, was still the case, that God was at work in his ancient people, and I suspect he would say the same for us, that at those moments in our lives where we think that God has forgotten us, broken his promises, left us behind, don't stop there with God because God has not stopped there with you either. So this is Paul's theme, and he says that this is what God is up to without explaining exactly how God is up to whatever God is up to. And that's where you and I often live as well. He clearly believes that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. He clearly believes that we come to, to a sal salvific relationship, a saving relationship with God by declaring that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. These things are true. He clearly believes that at some time in the future, there will be a great turning of God's ancient people back to God. But he also clearly believes that even when you can't see all of that stuff, 
God is still at work. And that leads to that doxology with which I began the service and which John Gregg read in our scripture reading again in Romans, where Paul, as it were, throws his hands up in the air and he says, I don't know exactly how it all works, but I trust God's Word. I trust that God is at work through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. We don't get it all here on earth. Now, he would say to the Corinthians, we see through a mirror dimly. Only then will we see face to face. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift to receive a gift in return? But what we do know is this. We don't know all of that, but what we do know is this. From God and through God and to God are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. So that's the beginning of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Questions about the place of God's ancient people Israel and the plan of God and the faithfulness of God to His Word at those moments in our lives and in history where it just doesn't seem as if God is at work. But along the way, Paul has another concern as well that I want to come to today. Indeed, he's had this concern throughout the length and the breadth of his letter to the Romans, but it becomes explicit in chapter 11. This other concern is about the place within God's plan of the Gentiles. That's all the non-Jewish people in the world. That's people like most of us who are not Jewish. The place within the plan of God of those who are not Jewish and the posture and the potential attitude and arrogance of those who are not Jewish in the plan of God. Before we get to that, our place within God's plan of salvation, I have one more thing to say about Israel. It's a little bit of an aside, but it will come into play as we think about what Paul has to say. What I want to say has to do with the connection between God's ancient people Israel as a spiritual entity a theocracy ruled by God, and the modern political state of Israel. This is a connection which has caused a great deal of confusion both in the American church and in the world of our politics today. So I know that some of you have seen the sad news this week about the terrible death toll at a religious celebration of ultra-Orthodox Jews in northern Israel, not too far from the Sea of Galilee, not too far from Nazareth, where Jesus was raised. In the report that I heard, the reporter said that the, the blame was being leveled by the participants, not at the organizers of this event. And if you haven't heard about it, you can go back and, and read. But at the government, because of their lack of trust in the government, to which we might all respond, well, what else is new all around the world? People have different views about the role of government in this, that, and the next thing. Except that what wasn't said was this, and what you may not know, uh, and what I first heard from my Jewish tour guide on a tour in Israel some years ago, is that a significant number of ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel, like those involved in this catastrophe, aren't just opposed to the present government and its policies, but actually to the very legitimacy of the political state of Israel. Now, let me say that again, because if you haven't heard this, you can look it up. It's all over the place. This is not secret. 
significant number of ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel aren't just opposed to the present government, but they are opposed to the very legitimacy of the political state of Israel, for which they say there is no biblical warrant. Israel is a theocracy with God as the king, yes, but not what we've got now indeed. Over 60% of the Israeli population is either secular or atheist, and in the founding documents of the Jewish state in 1948, the proclamation of independence, that the prophets of Israel are mentioned, there is not a single mention of God. So equating the secular state of Israel with the ancient people of God, as the ultra-Orthodox would say, and I would agree with them, on a biblical level is somewhat problematic. Indeed, I would say highly problematic and a bit of a stretch. I say this to bring us back to the Apostle Paul, whose focus in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 is not about geopolitics or about the emergence of a secular political state, but about God's interest in a particular religious and ethnic people within whose lives God is at work. And his interest in particular peoples includes not only the physical descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, but those who are not physically descended from Abraham, people like you and me, by and large, we who are Gentiles, your lives and mine. God is interested in our lives as people who have no flesh and blood connection with the key figure in the early chapters of the whole of the Bible. In fact, as Paul focuses on the place of the Gentiles, outsiders like you and me being welcomed into the household of God, his concern now is simply this. Not who's to blame for Jesus' death. We explored that question a little bit uh, last week. Well, we all are. It's I for whom Jesus died. Not what's God up to with his ancient people. Interesting question. He's up to something, says Paul. Can't quite figure it out. A little bit of a mystery. Not has God's word failed? Good question. Paul says, no. God remembers and keeps God's promises. But rather, his question as we move through chapters 9, 10, and 11 is this. That we, who are now included in the household of God, we who are Gentiles, might be tempted to pride and arrogance and complacency that we are now in and others seem to be out. Pride, complacency, and arrogance. Sad history of the Christian church and of Christians is that this pride, this complacency, and this arrogance has often been the case. We're in the center of things, and we want to keep it that way. And now we live in a world in which that is not so true as once it was. But the issue was an issue from the very beginning of the Christian church. Let me read from verse 1 in our passage, and then from verse 13 as well as Paul speaks about this subject. He says, I ask, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then at verse 13, now I want to speak to you who are Gentiles. That's us. Inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I glorify my ministry in order to make my own people jealous and thus save some of them. 
For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, if the gospel now is spread to everyone, and they happen to be uh, not believing in Jesus, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Won't that be glorious when all of us turn to the Messiah? But if some of the branches were broken off, and you Gentiles, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree, what then? Do not boast, he says, over the branches. If you do boast, remember it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. And then he says, so do not become proud, but stand in awe. You stand only through faith. Quite a lesson, quite a warning to say, when we think about where we are in God's plan of salvation and God's embrace of us, there is never any room for pride, but quite the opposite. When I think of what Paul says here, my mind goes to at least three stories of Jesus where he says pretty much the same kind of thing. And I want simply today to draw these stories to your attention. The first one is about a religious leader, minister, pastor, like me, making a prayer. This is in Luke chapter 18. We read this. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. That sounds pretty much like Romans chapter 11. Uh, that they were righteous. This is a word that Paul himself uses. It means in a right relationship with God or justified. That's another way of translating it. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this is the man, one who went down to his home justified or in a right relationship with God rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The teaching of Paul with regard to Jews and Gentiles and the teaching of Jesus regard to any situation we find ourselves in. No room for pride, no room for boasting, but only for focusing on the grace of God that has been made known to us. Then there's Jesus' story that we call the parable of the sower. This is a story in which Jesus tells us that we need to pay constant attention to our own souls. Of course, we're to care for others, but in terms of where we are for God, hey, pay attention lest you slip away quietly from God. So Jesus speaks about a sower sowing seed, and it lands on uh, rocky ground. It lands on hard places. It lands among thorns. It lands on good soil. I want to share with you Jesus' own interpretation of the seed landing on rocky ground and among the thorns. This is what we read in Matthew 13. As for what was sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word of God and immediately receives it with joy. Yet such a person has no root, but endures only for a while. And when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, that person immediately falls away. And as for what was sown among thorns, 
This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth choke the word, and it yields nothing. So you become insiders, and you were once outsiders, and you're glad that you're insiders, and you say, wow, it's great to be here. But you don't pay enough attention to why you are there or what the one who has brought you inside wants from your life. And so things happen. Temptations come. Troubles arise. And all of a sudden, we find that the joy we once had and the faithfulness we once had, just as Jesus slips away, and we become people we do not want to be. No room for boasting, says Jesus, comparing ourselves with others. Only room for gratitude and vigilance every day of our lives in our life of faith. And then God, says Jesus, God will do God's work if we are vigilant. It's God's word which does not fail, which is at work. And then one final story from Jesus. This is in the 21st chapter of John's gospel. It's a resurrection story. After Jesus is raised from the dead, a lovely and unexpected story of mercy that follows the fact that Simon Peter, Jesus' closest friend, let Jesus down just before his crucifixion at his trial when he said, I don't know you, never met the man, when he denied him three times and when the cock crowed. So Jesus, risen from the dead, approaches Simon Peter, who is back up at the Sea of Galilee where he comes from, and he's a fisherman. And Jesus shows a mercy to Simon Peter that he does not deserve. But it's a severe mercy. What I mean by this is that Jesus, even as he shows mercy, knocks the pride out of Simon Peter. So Jesus says three times to Simon Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three times Simon Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And in the story, you can feel his pain. You can feel his conscience at work as he remembers what has happened. And each time, Jesus goes a step further and says, I want you back in the ministry, caring for my flock. Feed my flock. Tend my flock. Feed my flock, Jesus says. And it's a poignant story about the mercy on which Simon Peter's whole life depends. And then immediately, immediately after that, something fascinating happens. In the very next verse, Peter loses his attention on Jesus and turns around to someone else and begins to worry about them. This is what we read at verse 20 of John 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. We don't know who this is. But this is potentially John, one of Jesus' disciples. Could be somebody else. He was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? So Jesus has just shown him incredible mercy. And he takes his eyes off Jesus and this other person with whom there's obviously some jealousy or competition, comes along. What about him? And Jesus says to him, even if it is my will that he lives forever until I come again, what is that to you? Peter, take your eyes off that other person. And then he says, 
you follow me. That is your job. You pay attention to what you need to do. Do not spend your time comparing yourself to others. You follow me. How quickly the temptation comes into our lives to focus on others, whether Jews or Gentiles, black or white or Asian or straight or gay or rich or beautiful or handsome or whatever it may be. Look at them. No, no. Jesus looks at us and welcomes us into the family. And by grace we are there. And yes, there should be joy in our hearts. But then, Lord, who do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? How can I depend upon your grace, not only welcoming me, but turning me into a person after your heart's desire, the kind of person to whom others would look and say, what do you have that I don't have? I would love to have that. Paul says, I glorify my ministry in order to make my own people jealous and thus save some of them. Do not boast, says the Apostle Paul, to those Gentiles who are now part of the family. If you do boast, remember it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. We have no physical claim on God at all. God's ancient people do, but we don't. You stand only through faith. You stand in the grace of God only through faith. Do not become proud, but stand in awe. God at work. The most unexpected places, the most unexpected people, including us, including us. If we know that, it's not a cause for pride. It is a cause for joy, but not for pride. But for us to say, Lord, what next do you want in my life? That I, and I would say the church, our church, that we can be the people who bring you pleasure and are witnesses to you. And in this wonderful phrase, so powerful witnesses that we make others jealous of what we've been given in Christ, so they want the Savior who is at the heart of our lives as well. May God help us seek that and find that in the power of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we bow before you. In the face of so many mysteries, you call us to love you with our minds, so we search these things out as far as we can. But then we're called to trust you and in humility to serve you. And we pray for that humility through which you can work in our lives in more ways than, than we know and in our church. And for this we cry and pray. Amen.